Recently, I discovered a book that's been around for a while, and I cannot believe it's taken me this long to actually pick it up. It's called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And essentially, the entire book is about why we self-sabotage, why in the pursuit of big goals and big dreams and success in our lives, whether that's personal success, financial success, business success, what have you. Why do we get to that moment where we destroy it all? Why do we get to that ceiling and bash up against it and then head back down in the other direction? Why do people have that big breakthrough moment and then never do anything again? From Literally, the first few sentences of this book, I was hooked. I read it all in one sitting. It's a super simple read and a concept that is so obvious but will totally blow your mind about the four different types of fear that we experience that keep us from smashing through that ceiling and resetting our internal temperature about what we believe is possible for our life. Gay calls it your upper limit problem, meaning you get to your upper limits and then have some kind of emotional trigger that keeps you small, that makes you move backwards, that makes you choose things that are going to hurt you instead of help you. It's kind of this idea that I think it's more than half of any lottery winner will be back down to where they were or even worse off than they were financially within a few years. There's psychology behind that. And Gay has a PhD in behavioral psychology and he's devoted his life to this topic. So I know you are going to love this chat as much as I did. You're gonna glean the wisdom that I got to glean when I drove out to visit Gay at his home in Ojai. And I just hope that you love this as much as I do. The book, if you want to take a deeper dive, the book is called The Big Leap. I absolutely loved it. And you're going to understand why when you hear my chat with Gay Hendricks. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. I was reading a Wayne Dyer book for the 50th time because I, I bring it out once a year and dust it off. And he mentioned you in in a book. And I had never heard of I, your name just on that particular day. It just popped into my mind. And I immediately stopped reading because whatever he said, I was like, that's interesting and ordered the book. The Big and, Leap. Yeah, yeah, The Big Leap. And devoured it and was sad it was over. And then I told you, I just started buying all of the back catalog, like everything that I could buy to understand more. And I am so excited that you 
are giving us some time so that we can share this conversation with the audience. So oh, I'm so happy to uh, that you found me. Wayne and I go way back. We were actually kind of come from the same background. I was a university professor at the University of Colorado, and he was a professor, I think, at Wayne State in or some one school out in the Midwest as a counseling professor. And uh, even on my first book tour, which was a bunch of books in the back of my VW bus back in the 70s, wherever I would go, whatever newspaper or radio station I would stop at, they would always say, hey, Wayne Dyer was just here last night. <laughs> <laughs> He's been everywhere. How I loved cool. Wayne. Oh, how cool. Well, I, I've only gotten to know him through his work, but he's definitely someone I wish I could have seen speak or hear or meet or shake hands with because he's been so profound in my life. But the piece of probably what I read in his book and why I grabbed the big leap and why I'd love to have this conversation today is, I mean, from the very first page, uh, literally I, from the very first page, I opened it up and you start to tell the story about your daughter. And I forget exactly how you word it, but I literally closed the book and put my head back and I was like looking at the <laughs> spirit guides like, okay, guys, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So would you tell sort of how you came upon this idea of upper limit problems and, and all that? Yes, it happened. I was a uh research psychologist at Stanford right after I'd gotten my PhD. And uh, it was a plum academic job because my the guy that I'd been studying under went on sabbatical and kind of named me to step into his place. And so I went from being a Stanford starving graduate student to being a temporary Stanford professor overnight. And it was a hallucinatory, a hallucinatory getting all this suddenly money <laughs> you know, and uh, things like that that I hadn't uh, dealt with in a long time. But anyway, I was sitting in my office, and I was feeling really good about the research we were doing. And I just had lunch with a colleague of mine who was also, we were talking excitedly about our work and everything. And so I came back to my office, and all of a sudden, I started worrying about my daughter. And the backstory is that she, that morning, I had just taken her to her first sleepover camp where uh, she was going to spend the night away from home, two nights away from home, actually. And she'd been going to this camp all summer, but it was like, you know, nine to four in the afternoon. But this was a big deal, getting to sleep over for the first time. And she was five going on six years old. So I started feeling all these worry thoughts and I called the camp and I talked to the director and I said, hi, this is uh, Gay Hendricks, uh, Amanda's dad. And I was just worried about her. It's her first day at sleepover camp. And I'm worried that she's lonely. And, uh, you know, and the, and the woman was so kind. She chuckled and she said, well, you know, Dr. Hendricks, you're the third parent that's <laughs> called here this morning with similar kinds of concerns. And she says, um, she said, I can see out the window. Amanda's out there kicking the ball around, soccer ball with the girls on the soccer field. She looks totally happy to me. So consider that it might be you that feels, <laughs> you know, and suddenly I say, hmm, I have a PhD from Stanford in psychology and I had not occurred yes. to me to look into myself, you know. And But I realized, I said, why did I get that worried when I was feeling so good? And that was the first moment it occurred to me, oh, I have an allergy to feeling good for long periods of time. And so when I feel good for more amount of time than I'm 
accustomed to, I do something to bring myself back down. And it was really interesting because at the same time, I was beginning to work with really brilliant business executives. It was when Silicon Valley was just beginning to happen. And there were all these amazing high-tech people there at, um, you know, Hewlett-Packard and, well, Apple wasn't there yet, but uh, all those kind of companies, they were just brilliant people. And I would be working with them and oftentimes working with them in marriage counseling. And I noticed that they would often have a breakthrough at work, like they get a big raise or have a big at a boy or at a girl at work. And then they'd go home and start a fight that night or have a fight. And I heard the same story, you know, like, oh man, Friday, I got the, you know, I got the $150,000 bonus. And then I walked in the door and she started on me and, you know, that kind of thing. And I realized it didn't have anything to do with the content of what happened. It was just the fact that a person was running more energy through themselves than they'd ever run before. They were trying to accommodate more positive energy and they didn't know how to do that. So they created an argument or um, an illness or an accident to bring themselves back down to a comfortable level that they felt programmed to live at. And that was a stunning thing when I began to see it because I realized I did that all over my life in my relationships. I hadn't met Katie yet, but I, I was in a relationship then with a woman and we would do the same thing. We would get along well for three days and then somebody would start to criticize the other one or we'd have an argument or something would happen to bring ourselves back down. And so I started calling it the upper limit problem. I noticed another really vivid one too, which once I started focusing on you know, studying it in myself, I realized that I could feel good for about three days eating well, and then I would blow it by going out and eating a bunch of things that I you know, that weren't good for me or, you know, s sitting there at night with some friends eating pizza, you know, the kinds of things that just bring you right down. And so I realized that I used food as an upper limit to how good I could feel. And I particularly had this one moment, which really a lifetime moment, which was I was losing some weight and um, I had lost about 30 or 35 pounds. And I was feeling great. And I was walking down the street and I looked through the window of an ice cream store and I saw this family of four eating this gigantic banana split ice cream sundae. And I just, my eyes popped out of my head and I ran in there and ordered one for myself, <laughs> not for a family of four, but <laughs> for a family of one. And I just gorged myself on this thing until I was stuffed. And then for about 20 minutes, I felt like a you know, a million dollars because of that sugar high. But then 20 minutes after that, I remember actually doubling over on the street. I had such a bad stomachache when that hit me because I went from feeling great, you know, 30 days of eating well and everything to wham. And I started analyzing that. Why did I do that? And I realized the same thing. I felt there was some something fundamentally undeserving in me of feeling a full-time flow of love and positive energy and good feeling. So when I would get to that certain level and exceed it, I would shut myself back down. So those were the first times that I began to notice the upper limit problem. It's essentially we're unconsciously sabotaging ourselves because we're sort of set 
to be in a certain place, like yes. almost like a thermostat. Like yes. your temperature is set to 72 and you don't really know how to go above it. So you will bring yourself down. And I think anybody listening to this has examples of, can think of moments where this happens all the time. I definitely identified with this so much. I've had anxiety on and off for probably the last I, th I guess since I had kids, so um, almost 16 years now. And I don't really remember having it before, but after having my babies, I definitely experienced it. And man, I identify with that so much that my anxiety will typically show up when everything's great. Yes. And, you know, I'll have a conversation with myself. I'll wake up in the morning, I just had coffee with a friend this morning, and he was saying the same thing that. Uh, he'll open his eyes and his brain is already like, what's wrong? <laughs> and and they'll have a conversation. Nothing is wrong. But I guess probably first step is maybe identifying that you're doing this. If someone's listening to this and they're having that aha moment, what would you suggest to them to, to become aware or more conscious of this in their life? Well, I think the first step is spotting yourself in the middle of one of your upper limit things. You know, you spot where you were just feeling good and now you're worried about one of your kids, you know, so you begin to look at that and spot that. The second thing, though, which is the really important thing to do, is to drop underneath that and ask yourself, what am I afraid of? Mm, because what I discovered is that there are only three or four big fears that are underneath the upper limit problem. And what happens is we're going along and we get to feeling more good feeling or more love than we're used to feeling or more money has come in than we're used to. And it excites, it trips one of those old fears and the fear comes up and then that causes you to do the upper limit thing. The fear comes up and then you trip and fall or you get a cold or you start an argument with your beloved. And so the thing is, is that there are only a handful of those fears, but they're Almost nobody knows they have them. They're kind of hidden fears. And because, you know, I've ha now had almost well, almost 50 years now of, of talking about this with people all over the world. And it doesn't matter if the person is in Calcutta or in Chicago or where. It's everywhere. People have the same kind of upper limit issues and the same kind of fears. And one of the biggest fears has to do with a feeling inside of being fundamentally flawed in some way, fundamentally undeserving of love, good feeling, wealth, uh, all the good things of life, because the person feels that they've done something or been something that is flawed and therefore disqualifies them from having a flow of love and positive energy in their life. And I want to broadcast to the world here that there are no such things. There are no fundamental flaws. There are just things that have happened to us that we're stuck on. We need clearing up, but that doesn't mean there's anything fundamentally wrong with you. So that's one fear that I work with a lot of people. And surprisingly too, Rachel, that it doesn't matter where you are in the success pyramid. I actually had a person call me with a panic attack person from Santa Barbara who was about to get the next day his palm prints in the Hollywood. Wow. You know, and his, I, I forget, there was some big celebrity who his palm prints were going to be next to his, but it excited such a panic in him that 
that he felt like he was suddenly awash in those, I don't deserve this. I'm, you know, if they really knew who I was, they wouldn't be asking me to put my palm prints down in there. So it excited that old fear of being fundamentally flawed in such a way that he didn't feel like he deserved it. And I remember he came over and we stood out on my front porch for a long time and just talked about this. And I'm really into body-centered kinds of things like helping people use their breathing and their movement and that kind of thing. And I remember just having him breathe into that fear and just say, yeah, I don't feel like I deserve it, you know, just to be honest about that. And then after 20 minutes or so, it just completely went away because he was willing to face it. Almost everything that needs to get our attention, the first process is to begin to face it in some way. You know, look at it, just observe it the way it is. And that's oftentimes the key to beginning the whole transformation process. It reminds me of, uh, and please tell me if I'm on the right track, but it reminds me of those stories you hear where someone wins the lottery and then within you know, a, not even a year, it's all gone or... Worse well, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, when I was writing The Big Leap, I studied a whole bunch of different lottery winners. And there are so many horror stories there that I didn't even put all of them in The Big Leap. Yeah. I, I put on a few, you know, the, the guy that, um, you know, won $10 million and then got mugged because he was in a bar with $500,000 in his pockets, you know, and he got, I think it was the largest mugging in history. It was something like $545,000. They rolled him outside the bar and got away with half a million dollars. And because he's in a bar talking about winning a lottery and everything like that. So, you know, really uh, amazing things like that. So I, I forgot exactly the statistics, but within a couple of years, I think about half the people that win lotteries are back to where they are or worse off. And so it doesn't have anything to do with money per se. It's just the blast of energy that gets run through them. And it could be instead of money, sometimes it's love. Somebody falls in love for the first time and it blows their circuits and puts them up against fears that they've never felt since they were toddlers pretty much. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I just feel like we can all see examples of this in our own life if we start to pay attention. If you're noticing, if you have, you know, like I'm telling you, my anxiety shows up when I feel like things start to go well and I'll sort of put myself into a state of not feeling as good. What, what can we do? What are things you can do? Well, first, let me tell you about a couple of the other fears, because I want you to look into those to see if any of these are driving your anxiety. One big fear, a lot of people in, in, who are interested in spiritual and psychological and seeking in general, um, a lot of them have a fear of outshining, that due to childhood circumstances, they were programmed not to let their light shine fully so that later on, as they begin to be called on to release their creativity and do more things in the world, it brings up that old fear that I'm second place in some way. And so that fear of outshining keeps a lot of people tucked in inside. And when they do shine, then it brings up waves of anxiety about, do I deserve this? And that kind of thing. A second type of fear has to do with a fear of abandonment and disloyalty, because it's, it's not about being abandoned yourself. It's that you're afraid that your growth, where your growth path, path is taking you, is going to be disloyal to or cause you to abandon people in your past that were there for you as you 
got to where you are. And I, I you know, we have living near Hollywood here, we work with um, celebrities and things, and a lot of them have that to the max, where they have gotten way out in front of where other people in their family have gotten and that kind of thing, and it brings up a, a certain kind of anxiety about that. So that that's another big one. In, in that instance, too, I'm curious, do you find, I have a lot of friends who are in that space, and I see quite often actors or singers or, you know, athletes who will have massive success and nobody is prepared for, you know, overnight success as much as we all think that we could handle it. And they will bring the circle, you know, they'll bring their like middle school buddies or they'll bring, you know, because there's safety in that. They're very uncertain. And so they'll bring these people and not to say that those people are bad or wrong or, but they're vibrationally at such a different level and often, at least with the friends that I have, it's interesting that they sort of can't get away from people. I'm trying to say this in the nicest way possible <laughs> from people who are never going to be sort of psychologically, emotionally, uh, spiritually at the level that they're trying to get to. And so it becomes this anchor. Yeah, and that has its, you know, positive side for the person because they feel a certain level of, it's like comfort food. Yes. You know, but the missing part of that, of course, is they don't realize that that is tethering them to a vibrational level that can be problematic. I forget who said it, but somebody in our field said that your vibrational tone is made up of the five people that you spend most time yep. with. Uh, but uh, the point, though, I think is really a good one because, like, I have a person I work with sometime who's very well known in his field. He's a kind of star in the business arena. And he's also very vibrationally attached to an old friend who has real integrity problems. Mm. And I see that that has an effect on the uh, on the person that I work with that, you know, by, you know, hanging out with that person just because it's comfort food, there's a vibrational a cost to that, yes. you know, that you have to operate at a certain vibration and then it's hard to vibrate at your normal circumstances. Well, and I think I see this a lot with the women that I work with because I work with women who are seeking, right? They are looking to change their lives. Maybe they're starting a business or uh, they're going back to school. They're doing something to work on themselves. And oftentimes when they begin to walk down that path, they have a partner who is aligned to something else, who who isn't supportive of growth, right? Who isn't sort of moving with them. And in that, that partner becomes an anchor because it's not only is it maybe I don't want you to change, it is 100%. Mm -hmm. I don't like who you're becoming. I miss when you used to hang out with me, you know, for all of these reasons. And most women will just give up. They'll, they'll give up or they'll stop or they'll pursue the dream, but they'll pursue it in, in the way that's least, you know, I, they don't want to inconvenience anybody. They want to do it quietly. They want to essentially try and have a light, but hide it under a basket where nobody's going to see because the partner is not yes. at their level. That's a big problem, I think, especially facing women today, because as I go around the world, I see a lot of very awakened 
women that are making huge moves in the world. And I'm cheering for uh, my gender to keep up, but uh, <laughs> sometimes it's a little slow. There was a study a while back where somebody did something very ingenious. They just called a bunch of therapists and, you know, a thousand therapists and asked them, marriage counselors, and said, um, who makes the call to make an appointment? And it, these were male-female relationships. Guess who made the call? I believe it was 94% of the yeah. time. Of course. <laughs> of course it was women. Of course. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, it's easy to make fun of that. But I think the, the important point is that women, I really appreciate them because of the speed at which they're awakening. You know, I, I have the pleasure of, you know, in our workshops and things, uh, I would say about 60% of our participants are women wherever we go in the world. And um, it's really refreshing to see so many women moving in ways that are really reclaiming their power yeah. in probably ways that haven't been done in thousands of years. And it's very exciting for, for a male to be part of that. Hey guys, if you are enjoying today's podcast episode, then I bet you'd enjoy an in-person option even more. For the first time ever, I am going on tour. I throw these big three-day conferences where people fly in from all over the world and we get motivated, we talk about our dreams, we create a roadmap, we believe that a better life is possible, most especially if we have a community surrounding us who gets it. It's so positive, the energy is undescribable. We are all the same and if we really band together, we honestly could do anything. That's what conference is all about. And for the first time ever, that experience is coming to a city near you. You can find more information at rachetalklive.com or by checking out the link in our show notes. But essentially, it's an opportunity to reconnect or rebuild a vision of a better life. My future five years from now, 10 years from now self, is counting on me right now. It's a chance to learn about how to grow your confidence and how the people who surround you are the most important factor in you becoming a better version of you. I am a leader. Hell yeah. It. Okay. <laughs> yes. So crazy that you can come to an event like this and feel so much better about yourself, but it's like real. If you're someone who is dreaming of a better life, but you're not really sure how to get there, if you would love to start a new business, a side hustle, build that nonprofit, go back to school, but you feel embarrassed to admit it to those people who are currently in your circle, come build a new one. You can find out more info in the show notes, and I hope I see you there. How do you convince or do you convince someone that they are worth this dream that they can pursue this. I mean, as you've counseled women, I'm sure you've encountered this, or maybe men as well, where they have a romantic partner and they know in their heart of hearts that this person, it they're just, you were at a vibrational level, maybe when you met, maybe when you got married. But if one of you is growing and the other is not, this is never going to work. In some capacity, it's going to break down. So rather than giving up on that evolution or that empowerment and that growth, how do you counsel people if this is their fear to step outside that fear so they can you know, break through the upper limit? 
Well, one of our sayings here is fear is excitement without the breath. Yeah. When you can remember to breathe and be with your fear and acknowledge it, you make very different decisions than when you're trying to sit on top of your fear and stifle it and keep it out of the equation. So when I work with people, I have them celebrate their fear, not try to make it go away. Same thing with anxiety. Celebrate it. It's the kind of early warning system of a deeper fear. And what am I afraid of? And so I think we need to look at ourselves as kind of a parfait of feelings where like anger is often on the surface. People get mad at each other and shout at each other. But underneath that is a layer of sadness that anytime you're angry about something, you're also sad or feeling hurt about some element of the situation. But way down at the bottom of the parfait, way down in your belly, you got fears that are part of the equation. So you may feel the anger on the surface, but be sure to look underneath that and find out what you're sad and scared about, because that will often turn off the stress chemistry for a while so that people can connect with each other in a straightforward way. I think with anxiety particularly, it's important to keep going for what I'm really afraid of. Try to find the fundamental thing under there that's driving it, because there always is something that we're afraid of. And once you identify what that thing is, and there's levels of stuff, but it could be abandonment or it could be fear of uh, burden or, you know, there are lots of fears that human beings carry around that really run our lives until we acknowledge them and say hello to them. So a good bit of life, especially in your 30s and 40s, in developmental psychology, we say in your 30s, you find your life, in your 40s, you build your life, and in your 50s, you enjoy your life. Mm. And a lot of people, especially in their 30s, uh, are are still in the process of finding their lives and uh, individuating from their families of origin so that they can take their own stand in the world. And that has a lot of different fears associated with it because, for example, speaking of women, what has happened to women over the millennia who have stepped out and, you know, they get burned as witches or they get stoned. (laughs) Uh, You know, it was only 300 years ago that we were burning witches here in the old U.S. of A. And that leaves a huge imprint on people. And that imprint has been there for the longest time, I think. And that's, again, like what's so exciting about our time is the number of people and women, particularly around the world, that are awakening awakening, because we... uh, Back in the days before podcasting, you actually had to go fly around to different countries and cities to get your message out. And yeah. we, we put on something like uh, 2.2 million frequent flyer miles uh, in our post-Oprah years for the next 10 or 15 years. We were busy flying around. Now I like sitting in my living room podcasting much better. <laughs> yeah. <isn't> it? <laughs> it's much nicer. We didn't have to get on a plane at all. I'll tell you too, um, that was one of my favorite quotes of yours is fear is excitement without breath. I have this blackboard in my kitchen that I write little quotes and things just so my kids will see stuff and it becomes conversation. And that every single child walked through the kitchen at some point and was like, what does that mean? I was like, great question. Mm, great Let question. Me, yeah. Let's walk through this. So thank you for that one. It's, it's funny that that's the quote that you mentioned because that was a good one. Yeah. And you can actually try that out for yourself next time you're afraid instead of trying to blot out the fear by eating something or something like that just take a few minutes of breathing with it move with it you'll find out it it dissipates very quickly 
And uh, I don't want to minimize the things that scare people too. There are lots of big fears that people carry around, fears of physical violence and things like that, that are, it, they don't go away in 10 seconds with a yeah. few breaths. You know, you really have to make friends with them. The first book I wrote, The Summer I Met Katie, was Learning to Love Yourself, which has a lot to do with this process of finding out what our fundamental fears are and fundamental issues are with our minds, our bodies, and our emotions, and actually turning the power of love onto them by loving the things that you have found most unlovable in yourself. And that's something still, it doesn't matter if I'm working with somebody that won an Oscar or somebody that, you know, a, a juvenile delinquent from the school next door here. It, it's always about a process of learning how to face and feel and ultimately love things that are inside you that you've previously withdrawn your love from. And it really is good to start inside, you know, to really start making those shifts inside rather than asking the world or asking other people to make those changes for you. Yeah, I think that's one of the most profound things I've come to understand in the last year is that nothing, no answer, no solution, no healing is ever going to be external. It's always going to be internal work that I do with myself and for myself and for my heart um, because I definitely didn't grow up with that awareness. I grew up believing, you know, if you could marry the right man, if you could have the right home, if you could have, you know, be the perfect mom, if you could do these things, it was always an external thing that I was chasing in my life. And it's sort of a bummer when you realize it's not external because <laughs> there's so much work, you know, it just, you're like, oh, this is here. Okay. It's here again. We're still dealing with this. This is still showing up, but how powerful, you know, it's like Dorothy and the Ruby slippers. She always had the power to go home. Mm. She always had the power to change her circumstance. And every single person, every single one of us, or those who are listening to understand that you can do that work for yourself and on yourself is is really profound because even that awareness, and we're going to sit down with Katie in a little while and talk about relationships as a different episode, but even that awareness in a relationship, the consciousness of, uh, well, you hurt my feelings. Yes. You know, well, no, me, Rachel, I decide how to feel about what is happening. I decide to make that personal or not. Becoming aware of why. I'm feeling the way I'm feeling or why these limits show up for me is challenging for sure, but really helpful. It's the biggest challenge really because it looks so compelling that it actually is the other person's fault. Yes. <laughs> Around here, we say uh, we have something we call the rule of three, which is if the same thing has happened to you three or more times, it doesn't have to do with anybody else. Ooh, yes, that's good. <laughs> That's good. I'm going to analyze that on the way back and be like, oh, dang it. Okay, that is. I got to own that too. Well, you know, I had before I met Katie, I probably had not three, but <laughs> I don't know, 13 women from the time I was 17 years old tell me some version of the following thing. They would say, you know, I really like you and everything, but you never share anything about yourself. You never share your feelings or anything. And when I heard that, you know, in my 20s and everything, before I got into my field now, I just didn't understand what they were talking about. I mean, it sounded like they were asking me to speak Chinese or something, <laughs> you know? And I finally, 
one day I realized, oh, you mean I, I'm angry? And they said, yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm angry at you for asking me what I'm feeling all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so that was my primitive level of development at the time. But there was this one moment, oh, when Katie is here, we can talk about it, but there was this one moment where my relationship life changed. In the first year of relationship with Katie, I was criticizing her for something. And I realized my voice sounded irritated, but I was actually feeling fear in my belly. And I, I just shifted. I said, I, I said that. I said, I'm feeling fear down in my belly. I'm, I'm, I'm realizing I'm sort of, kind of yeah, 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 criticizing you, but what I am, I am scared. And she said, oh, what are you scared of? And I realized, oh, I was scared I was going to lose her. So why would a person who's scared of losing a woman criticize her? I had to do some thinking about that. And I realized, oh, criticizing her is my way of pushing her away so it doesn't make me feel more uncomfortable and scared. And so, wow, that was a huge moment because I realized this pattern I'd been doing of criticizing her was actually to keep me from having to feel my fear. Because if I really let her in and she left me, that would be, it would be all over. Yeah. Well, and uh, you give this piece of advice a lot. And I'd love if you would talk about asking your patients or your clients or even in your relationship to what emotions are you feeling in your body? Yes. Not just what do you think is happening, but what are you feeling? Because if you can sort of boil down into that feeling, you can get to the root of what's going on. Yes. And there are three main feeling zones in the body that really cause most of the problems, especially in relationship conflict. Uh, most of us experience our anger uh, if you tune into it, you feel it in the upper part of your body, like your your neck gets tight yes. or your jaws clench or your hands clench. So it's more in the upper part of your body, whereas sadness is down more in your chest and your throat down in the kind of the middle part of you. And fear is way down in the middle part of you, down where you feel butterflies in the stomach and a tight band across the belly. So what happens is because people are unable and haven't learned yet to communicate effectively about those three feeling zones, they tend to push people away and, and keep them out of that so they don't have to admit to those feelings. But once you get good at saying, I'm angry right now, or I feel sad, or I feel scared, once you get having a conversational type of relationship with your own emotions, it becomes much easier then, especially if your partner can learn those same things. That's a big if, though, because as you mentioned a little while ago, oftentimes the growth of one partner is far out front of the other person, and the other person is digging in their heels. See, when one, one person, you know, back to the subject of kind of the vibrational level of things, once a person raises their level of vibration by having a new awareness or taking more responsibility for their life or thinking more positively, the other person is challenged then to raise their vibration to that level. And that's, if the person won't do that, then the other option is they're going to split or the person who's raised their vibrational level has to shut theirs off to get back down into the relationship again. But the problem is people 
don't stay shut off for long anymore. You know, we have this rising sense of energy and empowerment in ourselves. And, you know, like if you see in the big leap, I say that people are really working overtime to find out how to express their genius. And if they can't figure out how to do that, then that generates more anxiety and depression inside themselves if they can't find what that unique thing is that they're here to do. That's what I hope that people will have out of this conversation too, is that people will go looking for what that genius is, what that unique ability that it's at the sweet spot about what you most love to do and what makes the biggest contributions to people's lives around you. To me, that's genius. When I can do something like write a book or whatever it is that can help people resolve their own problems without having to talk to me, that to me is fantastic. That's a good use of genius. Or when a chef can make a fantastic recipe and then put it out in a magazine so everybody can do it. And that to me is the exquisite use of genius, is when you combine those two factors, what you're uniquely suited to do, what your genius, what your most loved thing is to do, and what makes that big contribution to other people. One of my mentors, Abraham Maslow, used to say, it doesn't matter whether it's a genius soup or a genius symphony. It's exactly the same. Maybe it's only going to be enjoyed by four people over the dinner party, but it's got that person's heart and soul in it. You know, it's got their creativity in it. Here we say that creativity is whatever has the capacity to surprise you. And it's got to have that edge of aha to it. And, And if you can combine that with something that makes a contribution to other people, you're living an exquisite human existence, in my opinion. I, of course, read The Genius Zone as well, because, you know, I read everything. (laughs) (laughs) Could you walk the listeners through the different, I forget how you refer to them in the book, but sort of the different levels, like this is something you're competent at, but you hate doing. Like there's four different levels to get to the place where you're sort of in that sweet spot in your genius zone. Yes. Well, think of four boxes. Uh, One box is your zone of incompetence. And in that box are all the things you do that you're not any good at and you don't like to do, but you go ahead and do them anyway. Right. (laughs) And everybody's got a stack of those somewhere. So the, the, the brutal advice there, full frontal advice is quit doing those things as quickly as possible. Don't do stuff you're not any good at. Get somebody else to do it. Like, I don't like organization of my office. I leave stuff around. One of my fatal flaws as a human being. But I have a genius organizer who for 50 bucks an hour will come over and do something that I absolutely hate doing. So she can spend two hours in my office and it looks like a whole new place, you know, for a hundred bucks. And uh, so maybe you can't afford the hundred bucks. You can find somebody to do that, but get out of your zone of incompetence. The second box that people get stuck in is their zone of competence where they're doing something they're good at, but somebody else could do it just as well. So you don't want to get stuck in that box either because you can be easily replaced if you're in a business and you're doing that. The third zone is has its good aspects and also it has a real trap built into it. Uh, the zone of excellence is when you're doing stuff that you're really good at and other people acknowledge you for it and you feel good about your ability to do it, but it doesn't tap your full 
capabilities. It doesn't tickle that place in us that's not tickled until we really release our full potential and get busy finding out what is my full potential? What is it that I most love to do? And once we start asking questions like that, life takes on a vibrancy. You know, I started back in the 80s. I'll, I'll tell you about the fourth zone in a minute. But um, I started back in the 80s. I realized I was only spending 10% of my time in this fourth zone I call the zone of genius. I realized that there were some people like Michael Dell that was spending a huge amount of his time in his zone of genius. And I really admired that. And I wasn't spending as much time in mine. And so I started working on 20%, 30%. In other words, three hours a day devoted to stuff I love to do rather than out of the nine hours a day. By the end of the century, by 1999, I was basically spending all my time in my genius zone or getting around from place to place and eating and sleeping and all the stuff I needed to do. But I eliminated everything else. And so for the past 25 years, I've been basically only doing things I love to do and make the biggest contribution to people. And it makes for a wonderful life. Yeah. I don't ever feel like I waste any time. Yeah. How much did your life begin to shift and change as you started to increase time in that zone? Oh, it, it, it changed basically overnight every time I made a quantum jump. And I found that every time, like when I got to 50%, that was a huge thing. And then when I got to 70%, that was also another huge thing when I realized, you know, that I was spending seven out of the nine hours of my day doing things that I absolutely love to do. But there were still these other areas that I was thought I had to do. Um, in the genius zone, in the fourth zone, it's characterized by, number one, you're doing stuff you love to do. Number two, you're doing stuff that makes that big contribution. Number three, you're doing stuff that time is irrelevant for. In other words, it doesn't necessarily take a lot of time in your genius zone to think up amazingly creative ideas. I used to have a, a movie business called The Spiritual Cinema Circle that I invented in 10 seconds. It took me 10 seconds to come up with the idea. Uh, I had a, a good buddy that I, he'd flamed out in the movie business because he, he made a movie called uh, What Dreams May Come that cost $80 million to make, but it only made $40 million. Oh, and, no. Uh, nothing worse than walking into a restaurant in Hollywood having lost $40 million of some rich guy's money, you oh, know? So no. he became kind of overnight. <laughs> he didn't want to hang around Hollywood. Uh, Stephen Simon, he's a great guy. And uh, he's done other movies like um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure oh, and yeah. things like that. Uh, but his his sweet spot was spiritual movies like Somewhere in Time and What Dreams May Come. But anyway, those didn't make any money. And he got on the bad side of Hollywood. So he came to me and I helped bail him out financially and ended up owning part of his company. And so what could I do with the movie business? I don't know anything about the movie business. I even don't like to drive down to L.A. all that much. you know. <laughs> <laughs> so and fortunately... We would go down to L.A. and we'd pitch inspirational movies to studios and we'd get thrown out. You know, people don't want to watch a movie about conversations with God, guys. Get out of here. Uh, people don't want to watch a, a movie about um, illusions. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and people don't want to see movies. And so we got thrown out of all these cigar smoking offices down there. So one morning after meditation, I've been a longtime meditator since uh, 1972, um, I meditate every day. And after meditation, about 5 a.m., 
I got this idea, 10-second idea. Oh, instead of trying to get Hollywood to make them, let's go to film festivals and find them, all the movies that Hollywood won't touch, and we'll send them out on DVDs to people who want to see them. Well, pretty soon we, we launched a business and we had 25,000 subscribers in 70 or 80 com- countries. Cool. And, and I ended up selling the business for more than $10 million um, three years later to a big company that knows how to run big businesses, you know, because I'm hopeless at administration and things like that. So I created this gigantic monster. Fortunately, we were able to sell it to a, a company that, uh, you know, ran it for the next 10 or 15 years without us having to be involved with the administration of it. But I, what I want to make is a 10-second idea turned into a $10 million product. It doesn't have to take long to think up genius ideas. And so that's one of the things, in fact, we say is that genius is partly doing things that you love to do and also doing things that don't take up a lot of time in order for you to think up creative ideas. And so your your creativity ups and the speed at which your creativity comes up to the extent that you have gone down inside and made friends with all those emotional barriers in ourselves and really owned that you belong here in this universe. You deserve to be here. You're, you're the same as everything else. We're all made of the exact same components. And so there's complete equality here in the actual real world. Now, in the political world, things stack up. You know, in the material world, one person has more money than the other. But at the fundamental level, we are all absolutely equal, and we're possessed with that incredible human consciousness that allows us to invent something out of nothing. You know, we don't have to keep going through the same motions. I once was in a, a uh, aquarium in um, New Zealand where I saw this creature called the slime eel, also known as a hagfish. And it was in a tank and it was swimming in a figure eight. And the entire time I watched it, it was swimming in a figure eight. That's what it does. That's the hagfish lifestyle, you know. And uh, uh, but I was amazed by it. It had on the little tag that it hadn't changed in three hundred fifty million years. It had making that same movement. It sits in the ocean and goes around in a. And the reason is if you try to grab it it exudes slime, up to a quart of slime. And so that's its way of defending itself from having to change its patterns. Wow. Have you ever known any human beings <laughs> that like that, that slimed you when you tried to change their yes. pattern? Yeah. Well, just know they're depicted in a uh, in an aquarium in New Zealand down there uh, called the slime eel. But uh, what it is, it's a metaphor, I think, for we need to be open to feedback. You know, 30 times women tried to tell me I needed to be more in touch with my feelings. And then one day, finally, I got it, you yeah. know. And uh, But along the way, <laughs> if I hadn't been so oblivious, I, I could have learned something in 10 seconds that would have changed my life. How do you figure out, what if someone's listening to this and they're like, well, I know what my my zone of excellence is because, you know, I, I can, I feel in my heart that I'm not pushing myself or that I'm not, you know, really trying to go to a upper level, but I'm not totally sure what that is. Mm-hmm. Is there a way that someone could figure out what's the difference between their zone of excellence and their zone of genius? How do you know? The easy way is in your body and in your body, you can tell whether the thing you're doing is something you love to do. 
And here's the thing, Rachel, a lot of times to find your genius now, you know, whether you're 40 or 50 or 35 or 55 or 65, it's important to go back to childhood and ask yourself, what did I most love to play with? You know, what was the game or the thing I made up? Because that will oftentimes give you a cue to what your real genius is. Uh, you know, the story, I forget if I told it in the big leap. Did I tell the story about the tricycle and my fifth birthday and everything? I don't know. I, yeah. I don't remember that. Well, uh, I grew up in a little town in Florida, in the central Florida called Leesburg. It's about uh, 40 miles from Orlando. It's a town of 10,000. I was born in 1945. There was no psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, school counselor, anything like that in Leesburg, Florida. There was a bunch of churches, but that was about it. For some reason, though, my fifth birthday, I got a tricycle and it was raining outside. And so my grandmother allowed me to ride it around her big living room. And the first thing I did was I got my granddad to help me set up a big cardboard box in the corner of the room. And I would ride my tricycle over to the corner and get into my box. And that became my office. Yes, and there people could come and tell me their problems. Yeah. Now, of all the things I could have come up, how in the world did I come up with that? You know, So I think somehow, maybe all of us, but some of us come wired in almost with something we're com we feel compelled to do. And if you tune into that, you know, who was it was telling me that grew up near uh, in the same family as a famous designer. Um, I forget who it was, but but from the time he was three or four years old, he was always cutting out cloth and rearranging cloth on the floor and that kind of thing. And later on, you know, twenty years later, becomes a famous designer. So something in us, I think, and in in um, one of my favorite quotes from the Gospel of Thomas, which was one of the apocryphal gospels that didn't make it into the official. Bible, probably because it had quotes like this. It said, <laughs> it said, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. And if you don't bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. Oof. Oof. Yeah. And, but it's the truth, you know, like, um, I remember a person who came to me once who'd been in a, a convent for many years and she had cancer and she had figured out that she was getting less and less interested in not expressing her sexuality. Mm -hmm. She was getting more interested in her sexuality the longer she, and she decided she wanted to go outside the monastery and, or the convent and have a relationship with one of the other women there. And they were kind of heading in that direction, but hadn't taken the big leap, so to speak. And so she got sick though. And so can you see how that would work? You Absolutely. know, the, this incredible sexual attraction. And if you're saying no to that, your whole body goes into a kind of a revolt against that. And, you know, fortunately, she caught on in time. I encouraged her to go all the way with that, you know, uh, get that person, make a commitment, do something different from your life. And, you know, the cancer went away and both of them ended up thriving later on. As a matter of fact, they went into a most un-nun-like uh, business. I forget what it was. It was not operating a weed store. It was operating a hot tub emporium or something <laughs> like that, you know, some different kind of thing That's than, hilarious. than you would expect. But last time I heard they were going strong, you know, 20 years later. Amazing. Oh, I love 
I love these kinds of conversations and I really like, I want to be conscious of our time because we get to sit with Katie and I really Mm. am excited about that. I do want to tell listeners that we have barely scraped the surface on your wisdom and your teaching. And I really want to encourage people to go start reading the books because that is where I began. And I feel like starting with the big leap is really powerful because if we could become conscious of where in our lives we sort of hit a ceiling and then bring ourselves back down, where do we self-sabotage? Even if you just started to notice it in small ways, I feel like those small awarenesses would have really big consequential change in the right direction for anybody who's listening. Yes, probably if you're going to start with one, the big leap, and also in relationship, conscious loving that we'll be talking about, those are the two uh, best ones to start with. And also, I want to salute the your listeners. To me, one of the most important things that human beings can have is to be in touch with that questing spirit and probably anybody that's listening to this has that. And I want you to, su- to celebrate that in yourself because that's a precious commodity in the world and needs to be deeply celebrated. So I want to appreciate you, Rachel, for that and your community for that and to uh, tell you, keep up the good work. Thank you. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. Man, if you made it all the way to the end of this podcast episode, imagine how amazing it would be if you got to see it live. My tour is hitting the road this fall, and I hope that you will join us. If you're curious, if you want to know more, or if you just want to watch a really fancy trailer put together by Jack, you can head to rachetalklive.com where we answer questions. I explain what you can expect out of the evening. What are the takeaway points? Why is your ticket worth its value? You can also learn all about the free live class that you get as a gift with purchase about how to become a more confident version of you. I mean, you could just do all the things. You could see the cities, you can find links to tickets, but it's gonna be so much fun. And I hope that you're able to join us. rachetalklive.com or check out the show notes.